the story of a king in the Buddha's time going to visit the Buddha he went to the forest where the Buddha was staying with 10,000 monks and nuns followers who were all meditating and when the king went there to the forest he had a few unskillful deeds on his conscience as he went into the forest not hearing any sound at all from these 10,000 people he became a little fearful and paranoid until he was reassured that the silence came from the stillness of people's practice sitting in the hall it feels as if we're worthy inheritors of that forest very nice to sit with a hundred more people in such stillness there's one understanding which is the foundation of undertaking Dharma practice And it's the understanding that is expressed in the opening line of the Dhammapada collection of verses of the Buddha, where it says that mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is the forerunner of all things. This is really the foundation of our undertaking a practice. It's this understanding that the unfolding of our lives begins and originates in the mind. When we look about in our own lives in the world, we see that it all comes from the mind. Mind is the forerunner of it all. We take any object, the bell or the building, or our clothes, or our zafus. Where did they come from? They had their inspiration, they had their source in somebody's mind. Our interests in the world, what we do in the world, our relationships, our families, babies, come from the mind. the way our society is structured, corporations, and governments, and bombs, and meditation centers, all originate in the mind. And so what our meditation practice is about, what Dharma practice is about, is the exploration or investigation, the understanding of what the nature of this mind is. What is the mind which has such enormous creative power? It has such great creative power that the whole world is a manifestation of it. What we do when we practice is in some systematic way begin to take a look at how it's all working, at how it's all happening, so that we can understand the nature of this creative process. When we take a look, when we look directly at the nature of mind, what do we find? We find that it is a continually transforming energy process. That there's nothing static, nothing fixed, nothing solid 
in the nature of mind at all. It's an energy which is being continually conditioned and reconditioned and transformed and changed in every moment. Is it possible to understand how this process of transformation, of continual conditioning takes place? And so we look and we observe. We watch carefully and we begin to see how fear conditions the mind. When fear is present, it conditions this mind energy in a particular way. When love is present, that conditions the mind in a particular way. Or anger, or hatred, or generosity, or delusion, or wisdom. Each of these factors is influencing and transforming the quality of the mind. And not any of these elements stay static even for a moment. It's this continually transformative process. So the meditation practice is a way of looking and understanding to see what factors of mind condition more contraction, more suffering, more tightness. To begin to understand what factors of mind condition more openness, more love, more compassion, more freedom. The literal meaning of vipassana, Pali word, is to see things as they are, or to see things clearly. So in this process of our practice of watching, of being with experience in a careful and attentive way, it's for the purpose of seeing clearly both what it is that's happening, and that's really our first major undertaking, that is to get present for what's happening, rather than to be lost in our thoughts or fantasies. The first step is to simply be present for what's going on. The second step then is to look and begin to see the laws which are governing the unfolding process. How this this conditioning transformation takes place. One of the meanings of the word dharma is law. The law of things. So we're investigating the law of the mind the laws that govern the mind, that govern the conditioning. One of the laws which govern it, which we've talked about previously, which is so important to understand, is the law of karma. And most fundamentally, understanding this means the understanding that actions bring about results. That every action of thought, of speech, of body, every action brings about a certain result. That's another way of saying that every action conditions the energy of mind. And so none of our actions are happening in a vacuum or happening unrelated to this continually transforming process. Every action of thought, of speech, and of body has an influence both on our experience in the present and also upon how the conditioning of mind unfolds in the future. It's as if we establish certain habit patterns 
or holding patterns in our energy. We experience quite clearly, as we sit and practice, the past accumulation, the, the accumulation of past actions. We can feel it in terms of our bodily energy, the particular, the particular patterns of tension or holding that have been established. We can see it in terms of our emotional habits. Something, some event happens, and an immediate reaction of anger or irritation or generosity. So these factors of mind have been conditioned and continue to condition the unfolding. Something that by now is probably very clear in your understanding is that the mind retains impressions, many impressions of everything. So sometimes it feels as if when we're sitting and watching, it's like watching this videotape of our life starting to surface, starting to become conscious. Because the mind retains these impressions of all our thoughts and all our speech and all our actions, these manifestations or these actions become for us either a source of tremendous joy and well-being or a source of remorse. or bad feeling. There's a certain responsibility we have to ourselves as well as to everyone else. Certain responsibility to look and see what factors of mind or what conditions of mind, what energies of mind are being conditioned, are being created by what we do. Where are our actions leading? What's the quality of energy that's being cultivated through the things that we do? This is a very important question to ask ourselves. So if we see that everything comes from the mind, that our lives come from the mind, everything we do comes from the mind, all our interactions in the world come from the mind, how can we begin to take responsibility for our actions, for the unfolding conditioning? We can begin to do this, we can begin to undertake this responsibility for the unfolding of our lives when we come to an understanding of the strength and the power of restraint. This quality of restraint is a tremendously important factor to understand, to develop, to employ. Tonight I'd like to explore a few of the different aspects of what restraint means. And it's a word that is not so greatly appreciated in our culture. Now, often people hear the word restraint and immediately shudder, don't like to hear it. But that 
interpretation of the word restraint comes about because it's not properly understood and we confuse it with some other qualities of mind, like suppression, or like judgment, or like aversion. And actually restraint has nothing to do with judgment or repression or suppression. Restraint has a few different aspects to it. One aspect of it is the ability to let go of those desires or those wants which lead to suffering. It's a letting go aspect. If you were holding a hot burning coal and then you let go of it, would you think of the restraining yourself from holding on as being suppression? Well, I really should hold on because I don't want to suppress that desire to hold doesn't make much sense, does it? Restraint in this sense is not suppressing anything. It's a letting go of those particular impulses or thoughts or desires which either in themselves are suffering or lead to suffering. The mind that is unrestrained in this way is a bit like an unrestrained child who's filled with desire even for things which are harmful for it. And then when the desire is frustrated, has excessive reactions and temper tantrums and becomes very difficult. Our minds are like two-year-olds, three. The more mature of us are four, perhaps. (laughs) The mind wants. The mind wants this and it wants that. And the force, the habit of desire has become so strong in our conditioning that we haven't had much practice in developing the ability to say, no, that's not very helpful. That's going to lead to pain. That's going to lead to suffering. It's a certain level of maturity of mind which can see where something is leading and have the ability to let go of it if it's unskillful the ability to say no to the mind. What's important in doing this is that we don't add to that no feelings of self-judgment, feelings of aversion, of suppression, of repressing anything, because all of those qualities or characteristics are totally extra to the very loving no, that we can that we can employ. Learning how to say no to the mind in a loving way when there's an impulse that is leading to suffering. We have to learn to do this gently because as we've seen, we start to do this and the mind throws a temper tantrum. It doesn't like hearing that. And so it takes some practice. It takes a gentle, firm, loving discipline. 
the inspiration for doing this will come when we understand that our actions are not happening independently of everything else, that our actions actually have consequences. So when we, when we see that and understand that, that becomes the inspiration for taking some responsibility, for saying, yes, this is skillful. This makes sense to do. This is unskillful. It simply creates suffering. It doesn't make sense to do. To develop that power, that strength. There's a second aspect of restraint. And it's one that can be worked with very effectively in our practice here. And that's not so much the side of restraint of letting go of that which is unskillful, but rather the the quality of conservation. The first was restraint as letting go. The second aspect is restraint as conserving. Energy conservation. As we watch ourselves through the day, we see how often we do things that are energy leaks. We build up the energy through our practice, and then at various times in the day, the energy leaks out. It's like, it's like a hose of water that's attached to a tap. And when you open the tap and the water comes through the hose, But somewhere down the length of the hose, there are little holes in it. And so that as the water goes through, it kind of squirts out you know, in little, little streams. And so the pressure, the force of the water is diminished. In just the same way, we're building up through, our, through the power of our attention and mindfulness and concentration, we're building up a tremendous quality of power, of personal power and strength. And yet, if we're not watchful or mindful, there are these energy leaks. This doesn't have to do particularly with you know, desires that are unskillful or unwholesome or lead to suffering. It can be very simple things that are not particularly bad or unskillful, but just a leak of our energy. As an example of this and also of ways of working with this conservation of energy, something like not eating after the noon meal, undertaking the eight precepts rather than the five. There's nothing wrong, there's nothing unskillful, there's nothing unwholesome about eating. So it's not a question of letting go of an unwholesome act. But rather the undertaking not to take food, for example, after a certain hour is found to be tremendously empowering. It's tremendously strengthening because we're not feeding the outflows. We're not letting our energy leak out, whether it's to sight or sound or taste or sensation or thought. So you might try that if you haven't worked with that kind of conservation, conserving, maintaining. Try it and see, see in your own experience how that attitude of conserving one's energy, how that experience actually is for you. Another little thing that one could do, just, just to experiment, to see the ways in which we can maintain the momentum of our energy that's building. This is an interesting one to do. 
you could undertake the restraint of not looking in a mirror. Just not looking in mirrors. It's amazing. Pretty soon you begin to forget what you look like. Not only do you forget what you look like, you begin to forget to care what you look like. (laughs) Not in a particularly slovenly way, but just in the sense of getting a little less identified with that kind of self-image. Another kind of conservation of energy, I noticed it when a few years ago I had ordained in Bodh Gaya, just for a very short time. And I was doing a retreat there, and I was doing the walking meditation on the roof of this building. And I'd be walking very carefully and slowly, and I'd get to the end, you know, to the edge of the roof, and I'd begin to turn very mindfully. And every time I turned, I would just look up, you know, enjoy the view. Then I would look down again, <laughs> continue my turn, and walk back. I got to the other end, and it was so, so habituated, this, this outflow of energy through the eye door. I get to the other end, I turn, oh. and look around, pack down again, <laughs> go back. And it was simply an energy leak. There, there was a certain build-up happening, and each time, each time I'd make the turn, it's like in some way, sometimes it feels like you know, blowing up a balloon. And as the pressure, as the air pressure in the balloon, as it, as it expands the balloon, there are times when the expansion, it feels a little uncomfortable because it's stretching, it's stretching our limits. And, and, and often the practice feels like that. We're, we're building up this energy and we're stretching, we're expanding. But in that process, sometimes it feels a little uncomfortable and so we let a little air out of the balloon. And so we look up, or we take too much food, or do many, many things through the day. Pay attention and see if you can work with this gentle and loving no to the mind. In those areas where you feel that the energy is leaking or dissipating. So there's restraint as letting go of what's unskillful. There's restraint as conservation, having not particularly to do with unskillful acts, but just sustaining and developing the personal power that's being developed. Now, for the purpose of understanding the mind and understanding this incredible pattern of transformation and creativity that's happening in each moment, it takes a tremendously strong penetrating power. We need the momentum. We need the strength. And this conservation of energy through through restraint gives us that power. It's, It's very empowering to us. There's another level of restraint. And in some ways, for me, it's the most interesting. It doesn't have so much to do with letting go of what's unskillful or of conserving energy. This level of restraint, or understanding of it, has to do with a radical transformation of how we understand ourselves in the world. It's a fundamental transformation (coughs) of understanding that takes place.
Restraint in this sense gives us the space (coughs) to experience ourselves and phenomena, to experience the insubstantiality, the non-solidity of phenomena. It unplugs us. Now, when we're continually going with desire and want, whether it's desire or wanting for particular sensations, or particular thoughts, or particular objects, or particular people, or particular situations, when the mind is reaching out, that reaching out is a plugging in to... a level of reality that's solid and fixed. When we develop the balance or the maturity of mind, which allows us to settle back, to be restrained in that reaching out, that settled backedness creates the space for us to experience on a very deep level the continual arising and passing away of phenomena on a very microscopic level. We begin to experience the insubstantiality of it all. It's what the Rinpoche was talking about yesterday. He was talking, he used the word illusory. We take this world to be so real, the world of objects, the world of people, the world of relationships, we create that sense of solidity through our wanting, through our desiring, through our reaching, through our holding. And so restraint from that reaching is an enormously opening, creates an enormous potential for coming to different levels of understanding, to pierce through the illusion of density and solidity and self and other. I'll give you an example which I think you'll all be familiar with. It's tea time. It all seems very real. We feel real. The banana feels real. The act of eating the banana feels so real. And it's like it takes on sometimes an overwhelming importance. (laughs) And there's there's just a level of, of solidity to the whole event. When we actually are having the banana... What's going on? You know, a few chews, a few tastes, and it's like, you begin to see that it's not so real, not so solid. Both in the attention we can bring to doing it, right, when, when we undertake the action, and also the space that's created from restraining from that wanting, restraining from that desire, we begin to create that space to see that what this process is, is a moment-to-moment... It's moment-to-moment insubstantiality. That there's nothing solid to hold on to, nothing solid to grasp at. No I, no solid me. One of, the, one of the verses in the Diamond Sutra expresses this insubstantiality of phenomena. It says, See all of this fleeting world as a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, 
flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. Where is the experience that overwhelmingly significant experience that happened in yesterday's sitting. Where is it? When we can begin to perceive this this show of constant constant change, constant transformation with no no solidity at all, totally insubstantial, illusory in that sense. Not illusory in the sense that it's not there. It's illusory in the sense that it doesn't stay, even for a moment. So then the mind begins to let go. The power of restraint allows us to see that more. Because we unplug ourselves from from that holding pattern, whether it's to people or situations or sense objects. Restraint as letting go of what's unskillful And again, without judgment, without aversion, without suppression. It's simply seeing that there are some things which cause suffering and that we don't have to hold on to them. Restraint as conservation. Conservation of our energy, empowering ourselves. And restraint as that mechanism which creates the space for us to experience the lack of solidity, the insubstantiality. So that's one side of things. The other side is learning how to manifest. From the power of restraint, we've developed, we've conserved this energy. We begin to see the emptiness of it all how to manifest, how to dance with the energy of life. That's the other side of our practice and the other side of understanding. There are ways to do it, ways which are tremendously joyful. As an example, one of the ways of manifestation of this energy of mind, the manifestation of generosity. This tremendous joy in giving because generosity or giving reflects the understanding of impermanence. It's a manifestation of true Dharma understanding when there's not holding on, when there's not attachment, automatically generosity manifests in our action. And it's a tremendously enlightening activity. We have to be careful with it, though, because the mind is so tricky and sneaky. Even when we're doing something so wonderful as giving, other little things can sneak in. And I had, I had an example of that happen one time when I was practicing with Manindraji in India and I had gone to the bazaar, the town, little village. I was buying some fruit and this little beggar boy, of which there are countless numbers in India, came up and I gave him piece of fruit that I had bought and he just walked away and there was this little twist in my mind (laughs) 
And it was very illuminating to see that mixed in with this act of generosity was also an expectation of something. You know, a look, a smile, a nod, something. But there was nothing. And I give him the fruit and he walked away. <laughs> and it was interesting to see how the generosity was tainted confused with that expectation. So again, even when we're, when we're manifesting in a, in a joyful way, in an energetic way, it takes a careful looking and seeing. You know, the paying attention to the quality or to the purity of the energy with which we're doing it. Generosity is one way we dance. Another way, another manifestation of understanding is through the expression of love and compassion and service. Relating our understanding of emptiness with other people in situations. What does love mean? What does compassion mean? Or what's the, what's the foundation for those feelings? The foundation for them is the quality of openness and acceptance. You see how much of our practice and how much of what we have to learn is love and acceptance of ourselves. Now, there's so many parts of our experience that we reject, that we resist, we begin, we begin by loving every part of ourselves and then extending that and expressing it. It's interesting to observe the effect of desire, the effect of wanting on our ability to love and be open. Because when we Explore, and this is, this is again what we're doing here in terms of looking at the energy of mind and seeing what factors condition that energy in particular ways. When we're wanting something, an expression of that wanting is this. Right? It's a reaching out. It's a, it's a reaching out and holding on. This is not a very open mudra. It's it's like, it's very difficult to be loving when this is going on. This is wanting, this isn't loving. Loving becomes very natural when we let go of the wanting and settle back and are open to whatever comes into us, whether it's our own internal processes, whether it's other people, whether it's situations. So we begin to see here again how the power of restraint, of letting go of conservation, letting go of, of so much wanting and desire and reaching, allows us to come to a place of love and compassion. One of the greatest obstacles in practice is our tendency to become attached to a particular point of view. We become attached to a view, we become attached to a perspective. And that attachment to a view becomes very limiting for us. And what's very helpful to understand is that opposites are not mutually exclusive. Although we tend to think that they are. And as an example, by way of closing, could think of 
the path of expression and the path of renunciation, the path of restraint, as being symbolized by yes and no. And so people get attached to one way or the other. Well, mine is the path of expression, of yes to everything. Mine is the path of restraint, of no. They are not exclusive. They become part of a whole. Each one has a strength and each one has a danger. Yes is the quality of openness, of fearlessness, where we can say yes to every experience. Yes to every sensation, to every thought, to every feeling, to every person, to every person. Can we say yes? Tremendous fearlessness in that, tremendous openness. The near enemy of yes is attachment. In our in our openness, in our yesing, the danger is that we get attached. What's the path of no? The path of no is also tremendously strengthening. It's the power of non-attachment. Non-attachment to anything. Not clinging to anything. In the Diamond Sutra, the, the line which characterizes the whole teaching is develop a mind which clings to naught. Develop a mind which does not cling to anything. It's said that as the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree, the attitude of mind was not this, not this, not this, not this, not this, not this, not this. Not attachment to anything. That's not no in a negative sense. That's no in a positive sense. The power of non-attachment, non-clinging, non-holding. There's a danger in no also. Just as the danger of yes was attachment, the danger of no is repression and aversion and judgment and denial. So what we do in our practice is to see that the yes and no are not exclusive. That we practice both yes and no. We're open to every experience without clinging. We're fearless in every experience without attachment. And in this way, our mind embraces a unity, a totality. Do you have any questions? When there was some question about the place of choice, you said that was interesting before the desire arrived that one could see before and that you would speak in this speech and I didn't see any notion of that uh, chosen place. Okay. The question was about a point that had been raised earlier, which is that when there's a desire in the mind, mostly we become aware of it on the level of the wanting or the desire. There's a more subtle place to observe that and it gets tremendously opening and fascinating to look at that place underneath the desire. And that place is the place where we're choosing to desire. That the desire is coming out of a place of choice. But usually we're not aware of that place of choice. And so we think that the wanting is inevitable. We're filled with wanting and it's just something we have to deal with. And we don't trace it back very often to see that behind that wanting there is a choosing to want. When we see that, when we drop down to that place of choice, then there's a tremendous 
possibility for looking at it with discriminating wisdom, for seeing, okay, is this choice helpful? Is it leading to suffering? I'll, I'll just share with you a slightly personal anecdote about this particular situation. A few years ago, I was in a relationship with a woman, and I was into continuing this relationship. I was having a very nice time with it. She wasn't into continuing it after a period of time. And we'd been together for a couple of years. And the usual interpersonal stuff, you know, was going on. And in the process of separating, when it became clear that that's what was going to happen, my initial reaction was one of a lot of sadness and a lot of suffering. And as that came up in the mind, I looked very carefully to understand where that suffering was coming from. Why was there suffering going on? And in the careful looking and investigation, I saw that there was a place of choice that actually existed. The choice being, I could choose to want the relationship to continue, in which case there was going to be suffering since it wasn't continuing, or I could choose not to want it to continue, in which case there wouldn't be suffering since it wasn't going to continue. And it was very illuminating to see that that place actually existed in the mind, that we, we are not simply slaves of the wanting mind, that there's a place of choice underneath it. So I don't know if you can connect with that, but it would be useful, it would be useful I think, to, to really investigate in each of us where that place is, because it's... it's Tremendously freeing. But it seems that, that the object will come after if you choose to desire, then you will choose for some object to desire. Because what you are choosing is to be in the state of desire. It's like if you go in a shop, in a shopping mood, and you don't know what you're going to buy. So I don't understand because usually it is the first the object arrives and then desire arrives. Okay, I don't quite get the question. Yes, if you choose to desire, then after you can look for an object that you want to desire. You could do it that way. But usually it is that an object arrives and desire to right. desire it. Right. So that's why I don't understand exactly how it's connected. I think in either way. Right, but you know you want to buy something. And so what are you asking? Whether it's possible to see the choice behind that desire even though the object is not clear? When you choose to desire, it means that you have an object which is not so clear? I don't think that we're connecting, so maybe afterwards you could come up. I've been noticing a different kind of restraint. I don't know if it fits in any of the categories, but it's the belief, for example, in my own fallibility or in my own fears or inabilities. I constantly confront a wall and I say I can't go beyond this point. And the fear usually makes me let go and give up at that point. It can be in a thousand different ways. And one of the things that I have to restrain myself is from my belief in my own inability, in a way. Uh, And I find that's happening a lot, but it doesn't quite fit the categories you're talking about. New category. <laughs> it's a good one. But I think that's, that's a very helpful point. Not only restraining letting go of the wants, letting go of the fears. Yes. Uh, that, that's extremely helpful. I have trouble connecting insubstantiality with generosity, love, and compassion. Because it seems to me 
have a piece of chocolate and it's insubstantial and I know that my desire to it is substantial and so forth. So to reflect that insubstantiality and to give it away, but just as insubstantial for you too. <laughs> no. <laughs> It's more insubstantial for some than for others. <laughs> the connection has to do, and, and again, this is, this is um, I think it's really important to understand this uh, since it's a place that we get caught a lot, and that is we function on a lot of different levels. If we could look, you know, at this through an electron microscope, there would not be Bell, right? and it would be mostly empty space. And yet we come in and we and we ring the bell. The power of understanding the insubstantiality of phenomena is that we can then employ the appropriate action on on all the different levels without attachment. Because the root understanding is that it's basically empty. But it doesn't mean that we get attached to the emptiness of it. It's an understanding that gives us freedom to play in all of the other levels without clinging. It's the example you're probably familiar with of uh, Ajahn Chah, Jack's teacher in, in Thailand, holding up a cup and saying, the best way to relate to this cup is as if it's already broken. Because when we relate to it as if it's already broken, we use it, we care for it, we wash it, we do all the things in proper relationship to it, but there's no attachment because we see that it's already gone. And so it's, it's wonderfully freeing to actualize that understanding of impermanence and insubstantiality in our lives. Because it doesn't mean withdrawing or neglect. It means being full, saying yes, without that holding. Okay. You know, in these last few weeks of practice, I'd like to encourage you to experiment and explore what restraint means. And I hope that it was clear that it does not mean tightening or suppression or judgment or aversion. That the quality of mind of it is one of tremendous strengthening and empowering and joyfulness. But in, in the English word, that, that aspect is often, is often missed. Play with it in your practice. See in just all the individual ways that you'll discover, see what it's like in a very loving way to say no to the mind. Just, no, I'm not going to do that now. Just the letting go of what's unskillful, the conserving of energy. A particular reminder, a particular kind of restraint that will be very helpful for this time because uh, there have been quite a few holes punctured in this hose. Uh, the restraint of talking. You know, to please come back to a real commitment to being silent. These last few weeks of the retreat are the dessert. You know, you've put in all of this time and all of this effort 
You've eaten your vegetables. <laughs> These last few weeks of the chocolate mousse. <laughs> savor it. I encourage you to savor it. For yourself, and also be very respectful of the space, not only for yourself, but for everybody else, because it's a very uh, wonderful time now. Absolutely. Mindfulness is the great conserver. So be mindful. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.